Welcome to the I Might Be Wrong podcast with Travis Seppala, where we discuss faith, dogmatics, science, math, physics, art, and share conversations with all humans. Well, mostly only the interesting ones. Join me in welcoming and encouraging Travis on this journey. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. My name is Travis Seppala, and I am your host. This is episode 22 of the podcast, and once again, I'd like to thank everyone for continuing to tune in and support and give your feedback. For those of you who are new to the podcast, welcome, and thanks for joining. Uh, Before I get started, I'd just like to remind everyone that if you do uh, want to share your thoughts um, with me about what my thoughts are about whatever it is that I'm talking about. Um, there is a link in the description um, of every episode that I release, and that is uh, my official email for this podcast, and I always try to respond as promptly and as thoroughly as I possibly can um, for anybody who does email me. There also is a link to my Patreon channel for anybody who's interested in, in supporting in that way, but more than anything, the best way you can support me is subscribe, give it a good rating, and continue to share this podcast with any like-minded friends, family, loved ones. All of it is definitely appreciated. So, wow, I kind of stepped on a little bit of a landmine. I didn't realize what I was um, getting myself into when I released the last episode. I released it fully intending on broadening on a topic that I had introduced, but I have had just um, been inundated. I have been inundated with all kinds of different emails coming in, asking me all sorts of different questions about some of the stuff that I was sharing in my last podcast. And so, in many ways, I'm glad I didn't um, <laughs> release uh, continue on. The reason I stopped where I stopped is because at this point, at that point in time, I was already 40 minutes into a podcast. And that's the longest episode of it I had ever released. And so I was kind of like, oh, man, you know what? There's still a lot of content I want to cover. And so before, you know, I go into that, I realized that would just carry it way into like, you know, hour and a half, two hours. Let's just stop and, and start the next episode. And so that's what this episode is. Um, and as I said before, I'm kind of glad because... Um, some of the responses and some of the emails that I've gotten especially have given me a chance to, to well, I shouldn't say a chance, it's, it's helped me realize that there were some things that I didn't really do a great job of explaining when I was kind of explaining, um, you know, me looking at the data and the numbers. And I guess, for instance, probably the best um, way I can explain this is I have been presented by numerous people the example of Martin Luther's response to the bubonic plague. And in this bubonic plague, he's talking about, he's responding to, uh, he's actually writing a letter to his friend Hess and, and just kind of talking about what a Christian response should be in the middle of what they're dealing with. So first of all, I want to talk about the nature of the bubonic plague. And this is why numbers matter to me so much. So if you don't like numbers, I'm sorry, this is just who I am. So the bubonic plague had a mortality rate, I mean, of conservative estimates put it somewhere in the neighborhood of 40%. 
Um, to give you just like, you know, bare bones understanding, I like to just do the simplify this for anybody, something you can picture. That means that for every thousand cases of the bubonic plague, 400 people died of it. For every thousand, 400 people. And that's a conservative estimate. Some historians say it could be as high as even 60 or 70%, which is just ridiculous. That's what they were facing, you know, and, and so the idea, um, of just trying to wrap our head around something like that is almost impossible to do. I mean, Martin Luther is writing in that type of a situation where, he, you know, living in a small village, there was in the small village in Wittenberg that he was living in, there was people dying every day. And that and, and watching them die, I mean, that was a completely different situation than what we're going through. And this is really the whole point I was trying to make in the last episode, is that we've actually been fed something that isn't real. We basically been, you know, this has been so sensationalized that this is the comparison that we make. We kind of make a comparison to the bubonic plague. I mean, that's ridiculous. I mean, you really think that's what we're dealing with? And I don't say it to mock you. I say this because the reason this makes me angry is because this has been sensationalized and we've been manipulated into believing this. But when you actually look at the numbers, and I'm going to work with CDC numbers, okay? And so the CDC estimates between February of last year, this is February of last year, 2020, to December of 2020, they estimated that over 84 million people had had the coronavirus. That's on the, that is a CDC number. That is not me. And, they were, and you can go through the models. They explain exactly how they come up with those numbers because they're basically using the reality of how many people actually report cases, how many, and they're comparing it to how many people show up in the hospital. Now, if you begin to extrapolate that data out to where we are today and we, you use their modeling based on what they're doing, that actually puts us at a place where if you say the first cases arrived in the United States in February, which they didn't, they didn't, we know that now, we know that by analyzing um, some of the different uh, blood samples and different things like that, we know for a fact that it was in the United States and it was an international um, it was it was spreading internationally. It was in Italy, China. It was in other countries as early as November of 2019, um, and even earlier than that. Okay, so this is a really conservative estimate. That means that just running those numbers, um, we're dealing with something that has a mortality rate of just under one half of one percent, and that's. That's a very conservative number on my part. Um, and if anybody's really interested, I'll give you the numbers. I've run through, you know, just, you know, because I'm that nerdy, I've just kind of, in my spare time, just kind of looked, looked at all the different models that they're using and kind of extrapolated, I mean, extrapolated some of it out and just, okay, that's where we are. Because we, we know that's where we were in December, using those same numbers, putting us into March. Okay, this is most likely where we're at. And so now what happens is, what we're told is we're told, yeah, it's far more deadly than the flu. It's, it's way more deadly than the flu. And you know what? I'm going to say right here, is it more deadly than the flu? Yes, as a matter of fact, it is. Is it four to five times more deadly than the flu? Yes, as a matter of fact, it is. 
but you need to understand the numbers. And the best way that I can explain this, if, you, if you'll just let me do this, the best way that I can explain this is to use the example in that I see happen on a regular basis in the United States of America. And that is every once in a while, you have this Powerball or the Mega Millions jackpot that comes along. And all of a sudden, it just goes astronomically high. I mean, just actually a little while ago, it was almost both of those jackpots were in the neighborhood of $1 billion. And so inevitably, you go to the gas station to go get your gas, and you're trying to pay at the counter, or you're trying to get a soda or whatever it, whatever else it is, and there's people in line trying to buy these lottery tickets. And I remember watching people buying $100 at a time. And I always think to myself, that's the most ridiculous thing in the world. That makes absolutely no sense. And the reason that makes no sense is because you're not making your odds any better. Now, understand, anybody listening is going to think to themselves, well, you know what? Some kind of number guy you are, you must be pretty stupid if you don't think that you're not making your odds any better. So let me explain what I mean by that. Um, so I can tell you, um, you buy one ticket, I buy two. I could look you right in the eye and say, huh, I got, I'm, twice as, I, I'm twice as likely to win. My odds are two times better than yours. Am I telling the truth? Absolutely, I'm telling the truth. And I could also tell you if you buy 100 tickets, your odds of winning go up by 100 times. Okay? I'm telling the truth. But you need to understand when you're dealing with massive, massive numbers, it no longer matters. Okay? Because the odds of winning, for example, the Powerball jackpot are 1 in 292 million. To put that into perspective, that means if you went out and you bought 100 million lottery tickets... And every single one of them had an individual number. In other, words, in other words, there was no repeated numbers. So you had 100 million different possible combinations of numbers. And you purchased all of them. And they're, I think they're like 2 or $3, which means you'd have to spend like $200 million to do that. Um, if you did that, you would have better than 1 in 3 odds of winning the, winning the lottery which sounds amazing. One in three odds of winning a billion dollars. Why wouldn't somebody do that? Well, it's really simple, honestly. It's because when you're dealing with numbers that big, one in three actually means even though you have a hundred million tickets in your hand, I mean, obviously not their hand, you probably have them like packed into your garage and, and, and you know, filling out your car, everything else, but <clears throat> that's beside the point. But even if you had that, there is still 192 possible combinations of numbers that can hit the next day or the next day or whenever they do it in which you're not a winner. 192 million, okay? You're not dealing with three possible outcomes. You're dealing with 292 million possible outcomes. And so if I were to tell you that by buying one extra ticket, you're doubling your odds... I'm telling you the truth, but when you're dealing with numbers that are extremely large or extremely small, comparing them can be very, very deceptive. And that's what's happening right now. What you have is you have people, headlines showing up in papers. One of the papers that came out in, I believe it was January of this year, was saying that the flu is much, I mean, the coronavirus is much more deadly than the flu, four times more deadly than the flu. 
and they're telling the truth. But what they don't tell you is you're talking about a number that is 0.1% or a little over 0.1% versus a number that's somewhere between 0.4 and 0.5%, which means that for every thousand people who get, get the flu, about one, a little over one of them will die historically. Um, and for every thousand people who get the coronavirus, somewhere between the neighborhood of four and five of them will die. That's the entire population involved. And that's why we can't compare it to the bubonic plague. Okay, because trust me, there was a lot of other things, a lot of other diseases and maladies that existed in Martin Luther's day that were just as dangerous. In fact, more dangerous because things like vaccinations and a lot of other things just weren't weren't, were not available at that point in time. And so there was no need to write to anybody about what a Christian's response should be or whether or not Christians should flee from them. He's talking about whether or not they should flee or take precautions when dealing with an extinction level event. And quite literally, that's what they were dealing with. They were dealing with something that had the potential to wipe out more than half of the population. And they were watching it happen right before them. And so it's not statistically, it's not even this in the same universe. And so I don't say it to just be hard hearted. I know a lot of people might say, well, man, you just don't even care. It's not that what I'm saying is, it's not a fair comparison statistically. And I believe this is the comparison that we make is because we listen to these over sensationalized headlines where it's getting compared to the flu and you have this comparison between the flu and COVID and it's like it's it's three or four times more deadly. Well, that's terrifying unless you actually really understand how small those numbers and those percentages actually are. And then... You understand that this isn't an, extin- an extinction-level event, and this is not something that's even in the same statistical universe as the bubonic plague, and so we don't need to be having the same type of a panicked reaction. That's, that's part of where I, I'm, I'm come, I come from. So for any of you who emailed me concerning that, um, that's the best of a, the, the closest you're going to get to a response from me. Um, in, in concerns to, well, what about what Martin Luther says um, during the time of the bubonic plague? I'm just going to let you know, you're talking about two things that don't even exist in the same, same statistical universe. And so it's really hard for me to even begin to approach that. Um, I don't want people to think that means I don't care about the fact that people die. Okay. And that was never really the point. The point I was making the entire time was never a point about whether or not people should mask up or not mask up or limit social gatherings or isolate or stay at home or follow government orders or not. I mean, it's, it was never, that was never really what I was trying to say. In fact, I wasn't taking a side on the issue at all. My point, and my point still remains, is that what we have been fed is we've been fed this idea that we're dealing with something that is an extinction level event. We're dealing with something that is like the bubonic plague. And as a result, the only thing that we can honestly do to limit the spread of this virus is to isolate, mask up, um, take all of these different measures. And then 
what, what then was fed to us was this idea that we're not doing it for ourselves, but we're doing it for other people. And then the Christian church was essentially approached and, and asked this question where, well, don't you love your neighbor? Well, there's not going to be a Christian, not a good Christian anyways, that's going to say, well, no, I don't love my neighbor. Of course we love our neighbor. Well, then we were told, well, the only way you can love your neighbor is to mask up. And then the response from the other side became, well, you know what, if you put those things on and you hide at your home or you do all of these other measures, you, you, you follow along with this, well, then you're just, you know, one of the plebes that's, that are completely uh, sold under the government. You're being run by big tech or big pharma or whatever else. And, and all of this is a big fat conspiracy theory anyways, and we don't need to pay any attention to it. And if you really had faith, you would just go out and do whatever. And just for the record, um, I don't think you're more of a Christian if you wear a mask. I don't think that that means that's not a symbol as far as I'm concerned that you love your neighbor. Um, no more than I think if somebody decides to stomp on it and, and burn it and run around and say, I'm never going to wear it, and that that somehow makes you a better Christian too. That's not a sign of faith. Because as I've said, you know, as you, because because for me, I come from a place of numbers. I'm I, the way I look at it is the way I look at it is, you know, whoop de doo. You know, you're showing that you have courage in the face of something that has the ability. Especially like if you're under the age of like fifty, the numbers even go ridiculously more high. So I mean, if somebody, you know, who's thirty, twenty years old is trying to show how much faith or how how much they're willing to like not wear the mask for Jesus or something like that. Um, color me unimpressed. I mean, you have about a one in, I, I think it's, I can't even remember how, how much it was, like one in 100,000 or something like that chance of dying from this virus. I mean, that's not really that brave as far as I'm concerned. You know, I'm not impressed and I don't think that you're making some sort of a statement of faith. Okay. And this is part of the problem. Okay. We, the church have been divided and we have been told how we should behave. And we haven't been told from within ourselves. And I don't feel like we've had enough conversations and we've been willing to assess this with what we are supposed to assess it with. And that's grace and love and mercy toward one another. In fact, what we've been, what's happened is we've listened to either one narrative that's coming from one group of people in the media or another group of people in the media. And so one narrative is essentially saying, well, if you want to be a good Christian, then you will do all of these things and you will submit to the most draconian of measures. And if you don't, then you're a terrible, terrible Christian. And then you got another group of people that are saying to you that if you do this, what you're doing is you're allowing Brig Brother to take over the church. And so if you submit to all of these things, then you are not a Christian. You don't have faith. You serve a government. You serve the idol. And none of that is real. Okay? That's not real. And that's not loving your neighbor one way or another. And this is the biggest thing that bothers me about all of this is it's led us to this place where it reminds me so much of a parable that Jesus had to tell. And the parable that he had to tell was to a rich young man who came up to him and he wanted to know how he could enter into the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says, well, you know the law. What does the law tell you to do? And the man says, you know, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, yes, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will be saved. 
And the man asked, asked to me what I think is the most human of questions, and it's a question we should be paying really careful attention to right now, especially within the church. He asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And the reason he's asking this is he wants to be able to identify who is it that I have to treat like a neighbor. Because I don't want to do this to everybody. I don't want it to be everybody around me that I have to treat well. I want to know who is my neighbor. So in turn, I also know who is not my neighbor. And so now I can use that as a guideline. So I'm not using some type of, you know, condition of heart. What I'm using is I'm using, you know, this outward appearance, something that I can see on on the outside and be able to simply say, well, that's my neighbor. I'll treat and be nice to him. That's my neighbor. I'm going to treat him like a big, you know, pile of trash. I'm going to treat him like a second class citizen. And you want to know something? That's what's going on in the church right now. We are figuring out who is my neighbor by things like, are they wearing a mask? They're not wearing a mask, my goodness. They must not be my neighbor. Are they limiting their social gatherings? They're not limiting their social gatherings? Oh my goodness, they must not be my neighbor. They had a birthday party with how many people over there and nobody masked up? I'm not going to even be friends with that person anymore. There's no grace. There's no mercy. There's no love. And this is something that bothers me very, very deeply What we need to be concerned with is how do we minister to the world around us in the midst of all of this, and at the same time, be willing to understand that loving your neighbor takes on a lot of different forms. This past weekend, um, I, at the church that I serve at, the Eastside Church that I serve at, that's the name of the church, Eastside Upstock Lutheran, but um, anyways, this, we had this event called um, Feed My Starving Children, and this group of people comes in and you can pack together all of these meals and they send them off to third world countries and to people that are starving um, all over the world. And we actually hosted an event like this the, uh, a little over a year ago. And interestingly enough, because of the coronavirus, now it's been a little over a year later, we had them back and we were the first group that's hosted them in that time. And so you understand when you hear that kind of information What you realize is you realize that there are all kinds of people that rely on those meals around the world, and they're not getting them because of some of the different things that have gone on here, because of some of the different restrictions. So there's a lot of people that are starving. There's a lot of people that are hurting, and they're hurting really badly. And so we wanted to do this, but we were told by the organization that the only way, the only way that we could do this is if we required everybody who shows up to wear a mask. Now, at our congregation, we have not required this the entire time. And the reason being is not because we're cavalier. It's not because we're flaunting against the government. It's just because of the state that I live in. I live in the state of South Carolina. And and really, uh, as far as religious gatherings go, you know, we met and talked to people. I mean, I had people in our leadership talk to uh, members of the state legislature. We knew right from the very beginning. There was no limits to what, um, well, there was some, some limits, but they were not harsh limits that were put on the gathering, religious gatherings. And so there's never been a point in time where churches were, uh, um, had to require the wearing of masks, and we've never required them for anybody who shows up. 
So this is the first event. And I can tell you, there was all kinds of people that are the, you know, they're the type of people that if you should, if you were to try to, you know, if they show up at a store and the only way they can go into that store is to wear a mask, I mean, they turn around and go the other way. They're the type of people like you, you know, you tell them to wear a mask and they're going to put it on backwards just because they're so sick and tired of a lot of this kind of stuff. And you want to know something? Every single one of them that showed up wore the mask because it doesn't matter. Because the only reason that we, the only thing that really mattered, if that's the only way we can box up food and we were able to box up, you know, over 21,000 meals to send to people that are hungry, to people that are indeed starving and that rely on those types of meals. If the only way we can do that is to, is to submit to that, then so be it. Okay. Because it's not about me. It's about understanding that I must love my neighbor. And, and so engaging in a behavior or not engaging in, in, engaging in a behavior is not what determines who our neighbor is. And this is why this parable to me is so important because the man is asking a question right from the very beginning. He wants to know, you tell me who my neighbor is. And we need to stop trying to figure out who our neighbor is. And the, the thing that troubles me the most is we're doing this inside of the church, okay? We're treating each other poorly from within the church. We're doing this to each other. We're not even showing love and grace to each other. And, and my goodness, if there was ever a time for just a little bit of love and grace, it's right now, okay? Because... A lot of us don't come from circumstances that are even remotely the same. I come from a state that is is very very free in 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 the sense of like what kind of measures have been are, are there. There's other states in the union that are even more free than what we're dealing with in the state of South Carolina. There's there's some that are much more restricted. There there are you know many businesses that still haven't opened up in, in many states around the country. And there are many of us that live in all of these different states. And so we're all experiencing this, not just you know am- amongst our family, but we're experiencing our experience is different just based on the rules that we have to adhere to. And so we become very sensitive to those things. And so it's it becomes pretty easy to all of a sudden look at somebody else who has a completely different circumstance, maybe they live in a completely different state, and look at their behavior and make fun of that behavior, or belittle that behavior, or ridicule or judge that behavior. And, and it's not fair. I'm sorry. It's not fair. And we shouldn't be doing it because no matter what, we are still the body of Christ, Okay. We are still the body of Christ, and we need to stop figuring out what our neighbor looks like and start to do what Jesus actually tells the man to do, and that is to behave like a good neighbor, to be a good neighbor to everyone, and that's really the whole point of the parable he tells. And he does it in a really amazing way because he starts out the parable by talking about somebody who's on the road and he gets robbed by a group of men and left for dead. And while he's there lying on the side of the road, these two characters next come into the story that Jesus is telling, a priest and a Levite. And both of them are making their way along. And as they're making their way along, they see him there 
and they pass along on the other side of the road, avoiding him. Now, for many people, they you know, I mean, the way this story has been portrayed is that this is a terrible thing to do. You know, the, here you have these evil people. But that's actually not the case. In fact, priests and Levites, these were highly respected people within the Jewish community. You know, Jesus is not necessarily trying to portray them in a bad way. He's actually explaining exactly what they should do according to their customs during that day. Because before, they, you know, if they were to handle someone like this on the side of the road, they wouldn't be able to enter into the temple to do their duty. They wouldn't be able to do what it is that they're supposed to do. And so really, they're doing exactly what a responsible priest and Levite would do. And I love the fact that for the audience, they're actually being set up, whether they realize it or not. Jesus knows exactly where he's going with this story. For the audience members, he hasn't shared anything with them, being you know the Jewish people of that culture and dur- during that time period. There's nothing unusual in this story that's happened up until now. You know, you have a tragic story that starts, and here you have two people who come along, and they see him there, and they behave exactly like they're supposed to behave. The people wouldn't necessarily see this as them being hard-hearted. They wouldn't see this as these two people being evil because they don't understand this story as the story of the Good Samaritan. This is the first time they've ever heard it. And it doesn't have all of these other, you know, all of this other stuff that's been added, packed into it over the years. They're hearing it for the first time. And and really their response to this would have been essentially to kind of nod their heads. That's That's exactly what they're supposed to do. Then Jesus introduces the Samaritan. Now, in order to really begin to understand what's happening here, it it involves really having a good understanding of the differences and the animosity that existed between Israelites and Samaritans. And that's a very difficult thing to explain because these were not just two separate nations. These were two groups of people that both at one point in time were the same group of people and two groups of people that were laying claim to the idea that they were the chosen people of the Lord. And so you have, you know, the Samaritans believing that the Lord was to be worshipped in one location and and calling themselves basically the chosen people uh, of God and naming God as their own and and really in doing this um all the while the jewish people watch on and, and so i mean it's deeply tied to their religion it's tied to their identity and so there was no love lost is probably like the the biggest understatement i could possibly give to it but i don't want to try to dig too deeply into it because it's really there are really no fair comparisons that i can come up with needless to say there is a deep hatred and and so really Jesus call it, you know bringing the Samaritan into this story almost looks like him setting up a joke you know that here you have these other people they behaved the way they're supposed to behave and now along comes this Samaritan and what do you know he handles this guy 
He does exactly what you're not supposed to do. And and not only that, you know, now he comes walking into to, you know, the, the the closest town that he can give get to and you know, he goes through all of these things that he's he's supposed to do. I mean, not he that he's not supposed to do. He behaves exactly how he's not supposed to behave. And then it, on top of it, you know, he leaves him in an inn. He and he goes on to say, you know, whatever whatever else that you need, you take care of all of that. Um, I'll be back to pay his bill. And and then Jesus all of a sudden turns this story around quickly, and the people find out really quickly that this is not meant to poke fun at Samaritans. It's meant to absolutely dismantle and destroy the question that's been asked of him. Because he says, who of these three people is a neighbor to the man who was lying and dying in a ditch. And the man answers, he can only say the man who helps him. He doesn't even want to say the Samaritan. And the whole point that Jesus is making is that you're trying to figure out who your neighbor is. When in all reality, I would rather that you're some low down, dirty scumbag of a Samaritan, at least as long as you would love and care for the people around you. And to use a Samaritan, a Samaritan would be one group of people that any Israelite would assume that, yes, love your neighbor as yourself. And surely that's not my neighbor. That's one group of people I can be assured is not my neighbor. And so I can do whatever I want to do as far as they're concerned. And what Jesus lets him know, he lets us know, is that if you're looking for a group of people that are not your neighbor you're not going to find that group of people. It doesn't exist. Because the commandment is not about trying to figure out who your neighbor is. It's about loving your neighbor, loving all people, and being a neighbor to everyone. Showing love and ministering love to everyone instead of trying to figure out who you have to do that to or not based on some sort sort of outward behavior. And if we can't get that get this together right now within the body of Christ, if we can't stop judging and passing out judgment on one another, then then we've lost all hope, okay? Because Jesus says that the way people are going to know that we are his disciples is our love for one another. It's about love and sharing grace and sharing mercy. And that starts with at least being able to empathize and understand each other. And so let's understand and empathize with one another. Let's realize that many of us come from a lot of different circumstances. Some of us have you know, elderly parents and grandparents or we're around a lot of elderly people. Some of us might have all sorts of different health issues. Some of us might have a number of different concerns to deal with. Some of us might live in completely different states from one another. And so as a result, the way that we live our lives is going to be different in the midst of all of these, in the midst of these really unprecedented times that we're living in right now. But that does not in any way affect our ability to love our neighbor. It's just not the type of thing, though, that society around us tells us that, you know, or dictates to us. Okay? 
Jesus never said something like, this is how people are going to know that you're my disciple, by your willingness to flaunt your faith or, or in the face of all sorts of different regulations, you won't bow down. Or this is how people are going to know that you're my disciples. You wore a mask and you stayed at home and you submitted to your government and, and so on and so forth. No, he said, by the love that we have for one another. And this is what I, was, this is what I mean, that the, the society around us is not what determines and defines what love is or grace is. The church is defined, we submit to Jesus Christ in this. And that's where it gets, to whole, gets a whole lot more nuanced. Because in order to minister to some people, the only way we're going to be able to do that is we're just going to have to do things like wear a mask. Okay, and if that's the case, then so be it. And there's going to be a lot of other people around us, or in some cases, you know, for some of you that that are very, very scared of it, you might look around and see all kinds of people who don't even care about it. In some cases, those, those people might be your family members, and you might be terrified that they're going to get sick. And guess what? They're allowed to do that, and you can still have love and grace and compassion on them. Because our love in our for one another is not determined by some type of an outward thing that's going on. It has to do with what's going on inwardly, first of all, in us. And then as we look and encounter people, we don't see other people, but we see Christ in them. And if we've lost our way within the church, then we're going to absolutely lose any chance of ministering to the world around us. And so that's really my whole point in all of this. I'm not necessarily trying to take a stand one way or another. I can, you know, part of the reason I give you and I, I feed all the numbers to you is just to let people understand. These are some of the decisions that I've made personally and in a place of leadership. And the reason I've made these decisions has everything to do not with the fact that I consider myself to be some sort of an expert in epidemiology or virology or any medicine for that matter. But instead, just I look at numbers, and the numbers just tell me a story as far as I can tell. I mean, as far as I can tell. They just tell me a story. They do. Now, if the story was that this is extremely dangerous, trust me, I would be doing something entirely different. And if the story that the numbers were telling me were, letting, were basically saying that lockdowns, staying at home, and, and really, really draconian measures make a world of difference, then by all means, I would submit myself to that. Now, the, the, the title of this podcast is I Might Be Wrong, okay? And so basically, every decision I've made along the way, I've made with the question that if I'm wrong, am I comfortable with the different steps that I've taken in my life? Am I comfortable with what I've done? And the reality is, yes, I am. Now, that doesn't mean that I feel I'm right, okay? I've done the best I could possibly do with the information that's been given to me. I've done it loving people the entire way. And if I'm wrong, I'm still a child of God. And if you are wrong, you are still a child of God. And, and no matter what else happens, I love you right where you're at. 
I love you if you're in the midst of fear. I love you if you're in the midst of anger, convinced that this is nothing more than a government hoax. I don't necessarily agree with you, but I will have compassion. I'll listen. You can email me all you want, you know, and you can vent and, and, and you can tell me whatever it is that you feel like telling me. And it's not going to change the way that I look at you. And I think this is how the entire church needs to be. We need to reflect the love of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we need to do it in a way that's powerful and, and not allow the world around us, our society around us, to determine what it looks like to be a Christian, okay? What it looks like to be a Christian is we love one another. We do. That's what determines what it looks like. And in some cases, that means that we're going to have to do things that might be uncomfortable, In some cases, that means that we might not see eye to eye with some of the different decisions that people make in their lives. But do you have the ability to show grace, compassion, or do we want to fight? Do we want to yell, scream, and throw hate bombs at one another? Because the moment we do that is the moment we become an absolute laughingstock. Thank you. Just one final note I would like to just throw out there. These two episodes have both been over 40 minutes long. Um, And I would just like any feedback you might give me because they are a little bit longer. And I've had some people say that they would like some longer episodes. And so if you just let me know, is is this too long? Would you like... You know, do you like the idea of longer episodes or not? Um, I, any any feedback is always appreciated. Thank you, everyone, and goodbye. <laughs>